close out our time together. This is all I have to speak after lunch. It's always hard. It's true. Any conferences I've fallen asleep, Jerry Piper and MacArthur are different people, because I had a belly full of food. But I think the guy who speaks for right before lunch, perhaps has a greater task. So, I know you're hungry, so am I, but I would just remind you of what we've heard repeated throughout our morning together that man shall not live by bread alone. <laughs> That's eisegesis, that, that is out of context. But nevertheless, I will try to be succinct, try to be clear, so that we can enjoy lunch together. But at the risk of overstatement, all of these things are massively important when it comes to the doctrine of Scripture. Everything that Brother Ben, Brother Josh, Brett has shared, really Dr. Pratt is going to share, all of these things matter, but if I get to plead my case that the sufficiency of Scripture is something that we need to lean into because it is easy to practically ignore. It is one thing to pound the pulpit and say, I believe in the authority of the Word of God, but it is easy to sacrifice the sufficiency of Scripture in the name of pragmatism and comfort. And I've seen it time and time again. So I'm pleading with you. I know we're all hungry, but if you just give me, you said an hour and a half. <laughs> so plead with you. It's hard when your best friend is way bigger than you. I can't get away with it. It beats me up. I plead with you to think deeply about the importance of the sufficiency of Scripture. So the title of my lecture today is Tota. Scriptura. Toda. Scriptura. Not Toto. Scriptura. It's not a little dog, and it's not the band that blessed the rain down in Africa. I just like to say things in Latin because it sounds smart. <laughs> Tota Scriptura. Praising and practicing the sufficiency of Scripture. And I'll explain what Tota Scriptura is in just a little bit. So, Although justification by faith alone, sola fide, was central to the Reformation, it's been referenced many times today, and absolutely we don't want to deny anything that justification by faith alone is absolutely critical. But the doctrine of sola scriptura, scripture alone, was near the epicenter of the, of the Reformation as well. It's been mentioned a number of times this morning at the Roman Catholic Church, then and now, two sources of authoritative revelation, both scripture and tradition. Luther's monumental revolt at the Diet of Worms had much to do with his insistence that the conscience can only be bound by God's word. So what we're saying is that sufficiency then and now is important to combat additions to scripture. We're going to talk a little bit here about the Book of Mormon as well. Hope as witnesses and various additions to scripture that still threaten us today. But I think, Brother Josh touched on this, that one of the greatest threats in our day not only are additions to scripture, but it is subtractions to scripture. It is cherry picking. We can use something that we hear in modern parlance. Courtesy of Liberal theologians and liberal seminaries and liberal churches continue to cast doubt on the integrity of Scripture through things like this. 
the same people that will say in a creedal affirmation, or maybe even from a pulpit, would say, I believe this is God's word. Well enough. Many of these same people, scholars, will say this as well. But the God of the Old Testament, as it is presented, is a moral monster. I'm, I'm embarrassed by God's behavior in the vanquishing of the Canaanites and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. I believe it's God's word, but we have to give way to heavy mythologizing, because clearly a God of love would never behave that way. Or the Old Testament canon was pieced together from various manuscripts and haphazardly sewn together. So the truth is in there somewhere, but we've got to think a little bit harder to find it. Or they might say that the supernatural and miraculous stories are myths. We can even get back to the historical Jesus, that the real Jesus, the good moral teacher and social justice warrior, is somewhere in the Gospels, but we have to dig to extract him. Because the miracles and things are really just legendary amendments. Or they may say that the Bible is only authoritative in matters of faith, but it has nothing to say about science or history or any other sphere of life. That I believe it's the Word of God and I believe it will get you saved, but it really has nothing to say about any other sphere of life. So let's come in, let's have a holy huddle, let's sing a few beloved hymns, let's have a potluck dinner, but then let's leave everything at the door and then let's go out and bow to the altar of science. Because God has nothing to say about it. If you wonder, I'm just going to speak plainly, if you wonder how certain denominations end up where they are, the United Church of Christ, many liberal Lutheran denominations, and on down the United Methodist, and on down the line, it begins here at the battle for the authority, the necessity, the clarity, and, and the sufficiency of all of Scripture. God does not need a PR campaign to apologize for what he's put in his word. God's not trying to get off the hook for his behavior in the Old Testament or the blood sacrifice of a propitious death of his son. He's not apologizing for any of it, and neither should we. And that's why we need to affirm the sufficiency of Scripture. And I would add to that that one of the threats in our day, in addition to liberal theology, which is really nothing new, it just gets repackaged and reiterated. But perhaps in the pew, and not just in the pew, but in the cubicle, entering into a culture of suspicion and cynicism and anti-authoritarianism and relativism, perhaps one of the biggest threats is what I call a hermeneutic of comfort. I believe in the Word of God. I will tell you that I believe it's the Word of God. But practically, things are so hot there that certain things I just don't want to deal with. If you go out those doors to this culture, this relativized culture, and say that I have found a way to God that works for me and I feel so fulfilled and self-actualized, everyone will apply. They'll have you on the view, Oprah will give away your book, all is well. But if you go out and say, I have found the way to God, to the exclusion of every other way, because it's clearly revealed, as Brother Brett said, Jesus did not stutter when he says, I am the way, the truth, 
and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. A child can understand that that is an exclusive claim to deity and salvation to the exclusion. The law of non-contradiction says something cannot be A and non-A. Jesus is saying you can't have me as the only way to heaven and every other way to heaven. It's me or nothing. That would get you killed out there in the marketplace of ideas. And so the call to affirm the sufficiency of Scripture is a call to take up your cross and follow the Master. Because in affirming tota scriptura, all of it, all the hard bits, all the bloody bits, we follow in the bloody footsteps of our Master who found when he said, it is written, it is written, it is written, that the world gnashed its teeth for its cause. Brothers and sisters, I fear that we have an influence by liberal theology a little more perhaps than we realize. Perhaps we're the proverbial frog in the kettle where we don't realize how acclimated to the water we have become. And sometimes God is kind to shock us back to reality. The demons believe that the Bible is the Word of God. But they have no problem cutting out the bits they don't like. Satan comes to the Master and says, it doesn't it say he would bear you up lest you strike your heel against a stone? It says that. But you know what it also says? That he would spread the head of the serpent. The devil kind of left that part of Beloved, well, in short, we need to regain fresh allegiance to the sufficiency of Scripture, all of it. We need to plead with God to help us develop what I call spiritual reflexes. You notice how you say, like, you never forget how to ride a bike? Well, that's not totally true. Because now that I'm 40, sometimes things I thought I could do, I can't. Like, I tried doing a backflip on a trampoline. spiritual reflexes that over time, it's like those neural pathways get carved into your brain. We need, like our master, that when life presses us, when cancer comes, crisis comes, temptation comes, and temptation not just in the form of immorality, which is there, but temptation to just fade into the background at work, just be a wallflower, go along to get along, and don't say the hard thing, which is, by the way, Jesus is the only way to heaven. We need to develop the spiritual reflexes like our master that when we are pressed, what squeezes out of us is it is written. So what do you mean by sufficiency? You know what you're thinking, at this rate we're never going to eat much. <laughs> Wayne Grew gives a longer definition, John Crane gives a more succinct. So if you want a definition of sufficiency, here it is. The sufficiency of Scripture means that Scripture contained all the words of God He intended His people to have at each stage of redemptive history. And that it now contains everything 
We need God to tell us for salvation, for trusting Him perfectly, and for obeying Him perfectly. And that's a lot. Here's John Frame's succinct definition of sufficiency. Dr. Frame says this, Scripture contains all the divine words needed for any aspect of human life. All the divine words needed for any aspect of human life. So there's your definition, but let's offer some clarifications as well. Two things that sufficiency does not mean, and two things that sufficiency does mean. The first thing is that sufficiency does not mean that Scripture tells us all we need to know about every detail of life. For instance, when I say that Scripture is sufficient for all of life, I do not mean that the Bible will tell you everything you need to know about changing the alternator on a 2007 GMC Yukon with a 5.3 liter V8. I do not mean that the Bible will tell you everything you need to know about modern dentistry. That's not what I mean by sufficiency. I do not mean, when I say sufficiency, that that precludes the use of reason. That we know that natural revelation, Romans 1 says, that fallen man perceives the invisible attributes of God. He reasons that there is indeed an omniscient creator, that the invisible attributes of God are plainly perceived. You don't need to know that. You don't need to have a Bible in order to know that. But what I do mean, sufficiency does mean, that we are to look primarily to Scripture for guidance in every facet of our lives. Now, the minute I say this, it needs to bounce off the pew and come back and hit me in the head. Physician, heal thyself. But outside of this building, outside of the bubble-wrapped confines of a Sunday morning, when we have to make a decision in parenting, we have to make a decision in finances, we have to make a decision in vocation. Is our default mode to say, what does Scripture say about this? Or are we children of pragmatism? That our default is, well, this works. Sufficiency does mean that we are to look primarily to Scripture for guidance in every facet of life. And probably most importantly, Scripture does mean that we humbly submit ourselves to the whole of Scripture. To the whole of Scripture. No cherry picking. What do you mean? The sufficiency of Scripture that God has given, the totality of His Word from Genesis to Revelation, and it is all authoritative, all good, all needful. And that we cherry pick from the Bible to our own peril. Meaning we don't avoid things like the flood. You mean God ordained the slaughter of hundreds of thousands of people? Answer, yes. The conquest of Canaan, you mean that Yahweh ordained that Israel should push out its enemies and put them to the sword? What about predestination? That, no one wants to argue about predestination. There's some things you don't talk about. You know, like sports and politics. Predestination. Wrong! 
same. When my wayward heart tempts me to walk away from it all is what? What rock anchors my feet? Would it be a lot easier not to follow Jesus? In love, you were predestined for adoption. Not mechanistically, but relationally. God forbid we jump over the bits on predestination. We don't jump over the bits about the complementary roles of men and women, and we lovingly, humbly affirm what the totality of Scripture says. And that is male headship. We have complementary roles, equal in value before God, but men hold a special responsibility in the home. And in the we believe in the sufficiency of Scripture, all of it. Such that we can say to a culture clamoring for rationality, we say it with love and with grace and compassion, but we say the totality of Scripture is very clear. If I don't cherry pick, if I just read the totality of the Bible, I can say very clearly that homosexuality is sin. Transgenderism is sin. We, we don't need to get caught up in nuanced arguments about self-actualization and Therapy and Marxism, I can say, I know what the Bible says in total. Sin. What's the answer? Gospel. If we believe in the sufficiency of Scripture, total Scripture, if we don't share it, we'll be well placed to stand firm. So there's some clarifications. Let's look at some consequences. What happens when we drift away from the sufficiency of Scripture? Well, there are many. One of them, when we add to Scripture, when we say we believe in the Bible plus, one of the consequences, as has been said many, many times this morning, is Roman Catholicism. Now, I must say, and R.C. Sproul held my feet to the fire on this, Roman Church holds to a high view of Scripture. You talk to an honest cardinal or an honest leader in the upper echelon of Rome, will say that Scripture is inspired, it's God-breathed, it's authoritative. But through a slow attrition over time, there is also in Rome the inclusion of the Apocrypha. One of the core doctrines Roman Catholicism, that in purgatory, which almost, almost the entire economy of Roman Catholicism hinges upon the reality of purgatory, is extracted from the apocryphal text. It's really important for Rome's entire salvific economy to have the apocryphal. We need those additions, even though Jews and Protestants alike have disavowed the authority of the As has been mentioned, even though Rome affirms the authority of Scripture, she also affirms two sources of authoritative revelation, Scripture and tradition. So if you want to see a real consequence of abandoning the sufficiency of Scripture, not just the authority, we need look no further than Rome. Bible plus. 
there's also the cults who err from the sufficiency of Scripture by addition and alteration. Remember, I was in Wisconsin. Beautiful afternoon like this. Probably a little bit warmer. In southern Wisconsin. And it was a Saturday. And my children were downstairs. And I was getting ready. I think I was going to go for a bike ride or something. I was getting ready to go outside. And I have five children. And my oldest is 16 all the way down to two. And I have a dog. So when someone knocks on the door unexpectedly, it's a foretaste of Armageddon. <laughs> it's an eschatological experience, especially when we homeschool. My, you know, my kids, they just want to see people <laughs> other than me and their mother. So someone made a mistake of going. And it was just pandemonium. I knew, I knew exactly what it was. I could hear it downstairs. Dogs barking, kids running to the window. I got it, I got it, I got it, I got it. Fighting with each other, and I'm going, someone's at the door. Someone we don't know. This is going to be awkward. So I went downstairs, and immediately I, I, I had an inclination. He was a very kind, nicely dressed man and woman who was in the spring. I thought, it's Saturday. It's almost Easter. They were really nice. And lo and behold, it's kind of fun when you're like a reformed, kind of persnickety, Protestant Christian, you know, and they try to give you your sales speech to not tell them. Is that just me? <laughs> you just play it dumb, like, oh, I've got a king of all. I've What do you got? So they had a little date. They get, they're getting advanced today. They had an iPad with a, with a bumper video for the Easter service at Kingdom Hall for the Jehovah's Witnesses. And so I watched it. painful. But the thing is, to the undiscerning, they would say, if you were to say, well, do you, are you Bible people? Absolutely. I'm, I'm holding a Bible right here. And it's not like the Book of Mormon, which is gigantic. I mean, the New World Translation, just little amendments, you know, like John 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was able. Just a little indefinite article, no big deal, right? And then I went on to ask them about Arianism, and I called them heretics for denying the co-eternality of Christ. I've, I've never had the Jehovah's Witnesses take back their literature. <laughs> but they literally straight up took it out of our hand and left. Jehovah's Witnesses err from sufficiency by adding and twisting. This is directly from the Watchtower Tract Society. I'm actually reading from pulpit material from your pulpit, so you're going to have to sanitize everything. <laughs> but the Jehovah's Witnesses from the Watchtower says, and just listen how weird this sounds. So spirit indwelt Christians, this is going to fall on your ears and go, that's not, that's right, but it's not right. They would tell you this, this is Jehovah's Witness, quote, the Bible is a gift from God, one for which we can be truly grateful. The Bible is a book to be read and studied and loved. Show your gratitude for this divine gift by continuing to peer into its contents. 
will gain a deep appreciation of God's purpose for mankind. It just smells weird. Like if my Bible, if it's a gift from God, but you talk about it as if it's, it's just a nice addition, it's a nice thing to do. Jesus says, it's food. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It's not a nice relic to look at and feel good. It's life. And that's because the Jehovah's Witnesses say, yes, it's a wonderful gift from God, but you can't follow God accurately unless you obey the prophecies of the Watchtower also. Bible plus. It is good, but it is not sufficient. You need the Watchtower to interpret it. Mormons do the same thing. I'm going to quote again to sanitize. This is from the Pearl of Great Price, which is the Mormon affirmation of doctrine. Listen to what it said. Very subtle. Quote, we believe the Bible to be the word of God as far as it is translated correctly. We also believe the Book of Mormon to be the word of God. Vis a vis, the Bible is true in so much that it accords with the newer revelation of the Book of Mormon. That is a functional abandoning not only the authority of Scripture, but of the sufficiency of Scripture. Rome adds, the cults add and tweak. But there's another threat to biblical integrity, probably more prominent in evangelical circles. And that is simply just the repackaging of liberal theology that subtracts from Scripture. So I'm going to do something that I shouldn't do. But just because, apologetically, he's probably one of the most prominent and well-known critical scholars of the New Testament. And when I say his name, every theologian in the room is going to grow up, right? Harder. Bartman is nauseatingly likable. He's eminently intelligent. He touts himself as a recovering fundamentalist, so he knows all the language you know about conservative Christianity. But he has seen the light. He realizes that there's truth. Bart Ehrman, I listened to a debate between Bart Ehrman uh, and Michael McConaughey. He affirms that Jesus is absolutely a historical figure and... Bless his heart, he does not deny that miracles probably happened in the life of Jesus. That sounds really good. That's a far cry from the Richard Dawkins of the world, who are militant atheists, and Ehrman's super smart. And Ehrman gets a hearing with a lot of evangelicals in books like Jesus Interrupted. But listen to what he says, and this represents the attitude of many modern so-called evangelical scholars and how they are teaching the young men, and in some cases women, who are coming out of their seminaries to come back and teach you. Bart Ehrman says this, and Jesus interrupted, quote, the Bible is filled with discrepancies. Let's go ahead and throw a red flag in here. Many of them are irreconcilable contradictions. It's a massive philosophical statement that the Bible is filled not only with mystery, but contradiction. 
Moses did not write the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. And Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John did not write the Gospels. There are other books that did not make it into the Bible that at one time or another were considered canonical. Other Gospels, for example, allegedly written by Jesus' followers, Peter, Thomas, and Mary. Your, your Bible's great, but it's tweaked and flawed and quite frankly it's insufficient. Didn't you know that? The Exodus probably did not happen as described in the Old Testament. The conquest of the Promised Land is probably based on a legend. Because God would never do that. He's loving. The Gospels are at odds on numerous points and contain non-historical material. It's hard to know whether Moses ever existed and what exactly the historical Jesus taught. The historical narratives of the Old Testament are filled with legendary fabrications, and the book of Acts in the New Testament contains historically unreliable information about the life and teachings of Paul. Many of the books in the New Testament are pseudonymous, written not by the apostles, but by later writers claiming to be the apostles, and the list goes on. If you say things like that with enough bravado, enough authority, a little bit of cheekiness thrown in, and with a title that says Bible Scholar, a lot of people, evangelicals included, will unthinkingly say, tell me more. But, but not, not if you are firmly grounded, not only in the authority of Scripture, but in the sufficiency. It's interesting. I thought everybody today, when Jacob announced the title, I thought we're all going to be fighting for 2 Timothy 3, 15 through 17. But we haven't done it. And it's weird because we didn't get together and talk about it. But all of us have circled around Matthew 4. And I'm going to do the same thing. Matthew 4, verse 1. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, Hold on. Not only does that affirm that carbs are good, <laughs> the church said, Between this exchange between the Son of God incarnate and the devil. What was really at stake for him to come and say, Jesus, someone of your stature shouldn't be human? John MacArthur says this It was Christ's absolute trust and submission to the Father that Satan sought. To have succeeded would have put an irreparable rift in the Trinity. They would no longer have been three and one, no longer have been of one mind and purpose. In his incalculable pride and wickedness, Satan in Matthew 4 tried to fracture the very nature of God. 
happens is God's ontology is cracked. No big deal, just the, the universe falls into absolute entropy and chaos and dissolves. Because everything is upheld by the word of his power. So in this exchange, everything is on the line. Which makes all the more force when you say, well, how does Jesus respond? This wasn't about bread. This wasn't about getting a little satisfaction. This wasn't just about making a name for himself prematurely. It was about existence. It was about glory. It was about God. Now put all of your temptations underneath that in a lesser order. How does Jesus respond? How does the master respond? He says three words that have got, got, got to be our spiritual reflex. It is written. The temptation comes. Immorality. Comfort. Materialism. Out there, where it's not even safe to go to a kid's ball game anymore unless you say the wrong thing. Lest you stand up in a swim meet, like I saw this morning on social media. It's the woman who was singing even had a British accent. People with British accents get away with murder. <laughs> I'll be sitting through a sermon that's rank heresy, and it's not until halfway through do I realize, wait a minute, that's wrong. You have a British accent. It sounds so good. <laughs> it's unfair, but that's a different sermon. But I listened to a gal in a British accent at a swim meet telling someone who's working there, saying that man, that biological man, should not be competing against my daughter. And he says, man, I'd love to, I'd love to, you're not a biologist, you don't know, you can't, you can't speak to these things, what do you know? I'd love to have a conversation with you. And she kept pushing back. Good for her. But if, if it's at that level, the temptation will come. You can say it's the word of God. Go ahead. We live in a pseudo-spiritual age. You can have a little bit of spirituality. But don't you dare affirm what I know is in that book. You better affirm parts of it. But you better not affirm all of it. Exclusivity. Morality. We must get our feet planted like Jesus in Psalm 119. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin it. I have not just stored up little verses that I see on a coffee cup or a bumper sticker. I have not just stored up little sound bites in Twitter theology that I might sound Christian when I need to. That is not what it says. It says, I have stored up all of your word. All the hard parts. All the tricky bits, all the clear, beautiful bits, all of it, because I trust you. And I'm going to say it with compassion, but I'm not going to shy away from tota scriptura in the face of temptation and what is already here, beloved, persecution. You may not have a sword to your neck, but you might have it to your child if you affirm the totality. 
says, when you cannot trace his hand, meaning God, when you cannot trace his hand, you can trust his heart. I don't know exactly why this sickness came or why this trial or what God is doing. I don't know the minutia of the hidden will of God, but I know his character. I know he's good. I know because of Romans 8.32 that he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him graciously give us all things? I'm going to argue from the greater to the lesser. If he did that, I can trust him with everything else. So when you come to this word, don't forget, we're not just talking about the Bible as ink on a page. We're talking about God-breathed scripture from a God who is omnipotent, who is holy, who is rational. He's not contradictory. He is good. He is merciful. He is holy. He is just. He is eternal. He is trustworthy. You don't need to cherry pick. You can trust everything that proceeds from the mouth of God. And if he's not apologizing for what he said, beloved, stop apologizing for him. I pray that we would be a people that affirm not only the authority of Scripture, well and good, the demons know that, but we would be a people that affirm theologically and practically total scripture. It is all sufficient. I pray that you said, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Are you afraid to watch? Thank you, brother.